Hello, everyone, and welcome to Mental Health Much. My name is Vincent, and I'm a French-Canadian psychotherapist living in Toronto. As a therapist, I'm fascinated by anything that has to do with mental health. So on this podcast, I invite friends and colleagues over to talk about it. Being a gay man, I'm obviously more interested in anything queer-related, as well as topics that are pro-feminist, pro-trans, and anti-racist. This week, I'm meeting with Rahim to discuss the topic of envy. Ooh. Hi, Rahim. Hi, Vincent. Thanks for having me. Thank you so much for coming on my show. I'm excited to be here. Sorry I canceled so many times and postponed <laughs> before I could actually make this happen. No problem at all. I understand. So in my little speech at the beginning, I say I invite friends and colleagues over And it's actually only the second time now that I have someone more in the realm of colleague professional that comes on my show. And the other one was Mae, and she was speaking French. So <laughs> like a lot of people did not get a chance to hear what it feels like to listen to my podcast with another mental health professional. So this is exciting. Vincent, why do you insist on not letting me be in your inner circle of friends? You're just activating my envy constantly. I admire you too much to put you just as a friend in my head. You have to be like a colleague, like someone I aspire to be when I grow up. Oh, okay, okay. So I'm the object of your envy. I'll take it. Are we going to do play on words like that the whole episode? <laughs> I'm excited. I think so. So Rahim, you're a social worker. You're a psychotherapist. You do talk on mental health. You are very involved on social media on mental health. It's very much part of your life. But beside from that, can you tell us a little bit more about who you are? Ah, thanks for asking that. Sometimes I, I worry that mental health is my one and only interest. <laughs> Same. <laughs> you know, I go on vacation sometimes and I, I read books about people's mental health deteriorating. <laughs> and I'm like, oh, yeah, this is a useful book. I can relate. Um, but anyway, a bit more about me. So I'm born and raised in Toronto. Uh, I'm a queer Muslim. I'm really involved in queer Muslim organizing across Canada. I'm somebody who really loves, you know, living in urban neighborhoods. In Toronto, I've lived in several, <laughs> you know, I've moved so much. And each neighborhood I've lived in, I've kind of fallen in love with. So I'm somebody who really values relationship to place and setting. And I love like developing a routine in a new place, having a coffee shop to go to, having a bike path that I take. And I like discovering new places and, and starting to see myself as part of the fabric or the, or the routine of those places. So that's something I kind of love. That's very poetic and romantic of you. Well, thank you. I, if you could help me find a way to put that on my grinder profile, <laughs> we'll be sorted. Yeah, I should do a whole series just on dating apps. I'm sure there's a demand for it. It's also hilarious and exhausting. And I don't know, I, I feel like I've given up on it for a little while. It's very unpleasant to be on dating apps during the pandemic anyway. So it's a good time to take a break. Oh, I'm not saying I'm not on them. <laughs> I'm just on them and unhappy. <laughs> That's a that's a that's a fair place to be as well. I love that you say that, uh, and I feel a little bit like that. That sometimes you think that mental health and your work is your whole personality, and that fits well with my next question that I ask to everyone: What is your relationship to mental health? 
Well, I have one. <laughs> you know, I have always been interested in human behavior, family dynamics, picking up on subtext of people's conversations. For me, I think my interest in mental health and human behavior is really linked quite strongly to my sexuality. And when I say my sexuality, not like who I'm attracted to, but more so the experience of being a sexual minority and looking at the world or the mainstream world from the outside and thinking about how I fit in or don't fit in or how do other people engage with each other and what do I have to do to be able to interact with them in that way. And so that was like an, an early attunement, I think, that I developed. And then, you know, becoming a therapist and working with queer and trans folks has really made me think about mental health as an industry, as a complex, as a system. And so currently, you know, I think about myself as somebody who does a lot of individual interpersonal work, but also has to think about the political framework within which that individual work takes place and thinking about how Systems are often designed to label some people and subjugate them and take advantage of them and institutionalize them. And we have to be careful about how we use mental health labels and, and, and that we're clear about, you know, where we stand or what we're talking about and what our scope is in the spectrum of mental health. A lot of people who want support around mental health are, you know, wanting to talk about mental health hygiene, like, how do I take care of myself? Or how do I institute strategies for my mood? <laughs> how do I quick fix myself? Exactly. Yeah. And that's valid, but it's different than when someone's struggling with illness, whether, you know, they're talking about multiple medications and the side effects and how to disclose things about their mental health to their partners. Like that's, it's a bit of a different realm. And so I'm interested in the whole spectrum of that. And recognizing that there's a whole spectrum of that means that like, whoa, my one interest is actually quite a big arena to mm -hmm. play in. Yeah, and you're very active on social media with mental health. And I have just started because of creating that podcast, obviously. Mm -hmm. And one thing I've, I think I knew, but I really discovered it. And I talked about it with my friend Niza in his episode on anger And how the industry, like you describe, is very created towards women and, and I guess, white women in general. And that's very interesting as a queer man to try and navigate this world where, like, these women are saying great things and they're very useful to the realm of mental health, but it's not necessarily my reality. So creating queer mental health content was very important for me and I think for you too. Yeah, it absolutely is. I think when it comes to services or even public health, health promotion activities or widespread messaging of any kind, there is a target demographic in place. And that target demographic often doesn't meet the tailored or nuanced needs of a lot of communities. So I appreciate you saying that. And I think one of the other things is, you know, When mental health messages, whether they're memes or public health messages or, you know, whatever they are, they're often done in sound bites and they're done in small snippets. What I call psychopop. Yeah. Exactly. Like very easily digestible pieces of mental health. Yes. I love it though. I love it. It's good. It's good. I'm not knocking it, but it's like, here's a snapshot of the problem. Here's how you might find it in your body or operating in your life. And here are the strategies. 
it's useful for increasing people's mental health literacy. It's good for engagement with mental health, but it doesn't give you a lot of room to play in and discover and explore. And so sometimes I find myself sharing a lot of memes and I'm like, I can't actually apply this to myself like wholesale, but like there's some value in it. So I'll share it. Yeah, it does sort of like continue the idea and the stereotype that mental health is about having that like ha ha revelation moment about who I am. And then suddenly when I have that moment, everything's going to be better. I often have clients like the moment that they cry in our therapy session, they feel like they value the therapy better yeah. or higher. They're like, oh, you did it. We got there. You like made me cry. Yeah, we got there. And I'm like, it's not more or less healing. It's good you're able to feel comfortable to cry in front of me. But totally. I did not tr- like trick you into crying. No, and I think there's this like there's this imagery that I get about how people see mental health and their mental health journey. It's like I have all these walls, these defenses that are up. It's your job as a therapist to help break them down and then we rebuild them. And that's not completely inaccurate. It's a useful way to think about things, but I worry that it hinges on this idea of uh breaking down and becoming whole again. Mm-hmm. I don't think there's actually a wholeness to achieve. Like we're whole now. <laughs> you know, we yeah. do all kinds of things to maintain equilibrium, you know, like even if, like if you have an addiction or if you have severe anxiety, that serves as a kind of equilibrium. It balances out. It keeps you away from doing other things that might be scary. Yeah, I always say to people who have not done therapy before that gains you get from therapy really they never feel or look like the gain you think you're going to achieve by going to therapy. Absolutely. It just doesn't work the way that, I guess, media and social media and memes have been portraying (laughs) it. Absolutely. But we are not here to only talk about mental health. In large, we are here to talk about the topic that you pick, which is envy. Yes. When you decided to talk about this, I was so excited. But before I get excited, I want you to have a chance to let our audience know what do you mean by envy and why was it important for you to pick that topic? Well, in the last few years, I've been doing talks where and workshops where we I've explored issues of body image and shame and challenges in the landscape of queer men, gay men's relationships. And It's not been easy, but it's been relatively linear to think about what a workshop or presentation would look like. And so I've done a lot of it and there's been a lot of demand. But one thing that comes up in my readings and my conversations with friends and in my own mind is less talked about emotional experiences and envy is one of them. We talk about jealousy a bit more, but not as much about envy. And so mm-hmm. in my mind, I thought, oh, that could be the next big thing that I, you know, I workshop and talk about. And I realized, no, there's no easy workshop about it. Envy is incredibly complex. And I thought, how fun would it be to just talk about envy with another therapist and its complexity and how we understand it? I love that you picked a topic that you're not it's not the one topic that people always ask you. I remember you said, Vincent, if you make me talk about body image one more time, <laughs> it's good because you're so good at talking about it. And it's great that people ask you to talk about it. But I feel the same. I've been doing so many talks about crystal meth and gay bi and queer men. And each time I want to talk about something different, they're like, 
but what about what about you talk about crystal meth just a little bit more? And I'm like, okay, I'm going to do it. You know what? I think we're going to talk a bit about substance use later on because I think there's an interaction in gay men's communities between substance use and envy, but we'll get there. Yeah. And I'll make sure it's contained. <laughs> Let's take a quick music break and we'll be right back for the second part of the podcast. We're back to talk about envy. And I think the obvious place where to start is, and I'm sure everybody's wondering the same thing, what would be your definition on, on how you would describe envy versus jealousy? Mm. I think they're very different, but what is your opinion on how different they are? I think it's easy to conflate them or confuse them or use them interchangeably. And for some folks, they use them interchangeably and it could be fine. You know, like it's not a huge deal. But for me, like, because I help clients distinguish it as part of like a therapeutic skill or outcome, it does feel important to me. So I think about jealousy as a reaction to a threat of losing something or someone. That threat comes from a third person. So jealousy is about something you already have or you already possess, like a relationship that feels threatened. So jealousy is triadic. It has to do with three people. I would say envy is usually dyadic. It has to do with two people and is the reaction to lacking something, something you wish you had. So we feel envious when someone else possesses something we want or we wish we had. And envy is really, it's interesting because I think we're taught in many ways that envy is wrong or it's something you shouldn't feel it's bad it makes you a bad person and i did some digging to like just see like what are the roots of this and i found that some literature compares envy with coveting and coveting is like it's about yearning to possess something mm -hmm. and the word coveting is also seen as like having religious roots so to covet something or to envy is almost Sinful. Yeah, it, it is one of the seven like original sins. If, isn't there a list? I think there's a movie that I've never seen about that. Listen, I just don't know. I'm just, I'm not from that. Like, I don't know, but yes. I, sh I should know. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah. You're French Canadian. Hello. Yeah. <laughs> we know all about <laughs> sins. You do. So I, I think what I've gathered is that when we think about envy as a negative thing and we, we want to minimize it or contain it, it's because we feel ashamed of feeling envious because it's like coveting and it's mm -hmm. sinful. Like it's a thing you should not feel. My description is very similar to yours, where jealousy includes I'm going to lose something that I possess or I have the right to possess something and I'm afraid to lose it. Yes. Whereas envy is like, oh, I wish this would happen to me. And in, a, in an open relationship, it's the easiest way to describe it. If my partner is out and he's having a great night, I don't know, making out with cute boys, I can be envious because I'm like, I want to be out and make out with cute boys. Yes. But I don't have to be jealous because I don't, it would not include the fear of losing my partner. Exactly. Yes. So I can be both envious and the opposite of jealousy, which is compersion. Yes. But I can be both envious, but also happy for my partner because he's having a great night. 
Exactly, exactly. You gave a very good example, but the first thing that came to my mind, which makes me sound like a broken record, was I thought envy and I thought muscles or abs or physique because I feel like that's a thing that we're bombarded with as gay men. And like it's just capitalism really benefits from envy. <laughs> oh my God, they're, like their whole spills is on envy. Like if you possess that, you would be so much happier. Exactly. And that and that can range from all the nonsense gadgets I buy for my kitchen to like all the programs or apps I download or enroll in to think that like I'm somehow going to be better or my life is going to be better or I'll be a better human or I'll be more liked and blah, blah, blah. I would argue though that good kitchen appliances did make my life better in a very real way. <laughs> oh, and I feel like a better human. So, okay. And, and you know, one of the responses to envy or one of the ways people manage it is through ownership, right? Like, if I want this thing that someone else has, I can resolve that envy by owning it. That's much easier with material objects than it is <laughs> with other things. Absolutely. Yes. And how does one know that they're experiencing envy? Ah, I love that question because I think often people will say, no, I'm not envious. No, I don't have that feeling because they want to distance themselves from it and it has this negative connotation. But, you know, envy is our reaction to lacking something. And we're not actually lacking anything until we compare ourselves to somebody else and we see that they have something that we might want. So you'll know that you're envious if you have felt yourself become very competitive or compared yourself to someone in a way where you not only felt competitive, but you wanted to see them diminished a little bit. Now, this gets a bit dark because there's this connection between your experience of envy and feeling a bit sadistic. <laughs> yeah. You know, like if I see somebody that's suffering a bit or they're feeling humiliated, if I derive a bit of pleasure which is what sadism is, <laughs> from their suffering, then I know that underneath that, I've been envious. I've been harboring this like conscious or subconscious competition with them. And, you know, not to get too clinical about it or too psychoanalytical about it, but envy essentially then results from a kind of narcissistic wound where I'm thinking, I'm not good enough, I'm inferior, or... I'm inferior relative to this other person, or this person makes me feel inadequate, right? So you get this narcissistic wound, and later you appreciate your own sadistic qualities coming out. <laughs> and that's how you know. And then the next step is having guilt for feeling that way, coming into the mix, and then everything gets really complicated. Uh, yeah. And I think for any of our listeners, like I, I would challenge you to write down all of the feeling words that come up when we talk about envy. Because I really think it's like this cluster of emotions or what I call like a web of affective orientations. There's so many feelings. We've already talked about the overlap of envy and jealousy. And now we're going into guilt, sadism, <laughs> inferiority. <laughs> like there's a lot of feelings. But there is no shame. Like there should not be any guilt of feeling envy. It is a product of where we live in our society. And I, a few years ago, because I guess of my work and where I'm at, started saying when I'm envious of someone using those words and mm -hmm. everybody's just always like, what the F are you talking about? Like you're envious. And they're like, are you jealous? And I'm like, no, I'm not jealous. No. I'm just envious. And uh, 
sometimes it gets into really good conversations, sometimes not. But now in the future, I can just direct people who are confused to this episode of my podcast. That's great. You know, I like that you say that in your social and work situations, because I, I have similarly tried to introduce that because I think it's really important to normalize it, right? Now, it's not always helpful. So like, if I've always envied somebody's height or body or lip, you know, if you think about the aim of envy to be to possess, then I could try to get really close to that person. And that could be really uncomfortable because that person might not want me to do that. But I think when you're vulnerable about envy, you also have to be careful about who you're sharing it with and what the purpose is. Mm -hmm. So when you're in a, in a work meeting, and you're like, oh, yeah, that kind of makes me envious or it makes me think about my own envy or and that's something I'm sitting with. I think that's so healthy. It normalizes it. If you are talking to the person who is the object of your envy, I think you really have to think about like, what is the purpose, right? Sometimes saying to the person like, you know, I've envied you for a long time. It can be, it makes you vulnerable and it can be a very sweet moment. But if you're somebody who gets vulnerable and then like shames yourself for doing that or being too exposed, you know, talking to the object of your of the envy is not a good idea for you. So I think that's an important distinction to make. It's not a good self-care strategy. <laughs> yeah. And to be clear, I mostly use it in terms of behavior. Mm. So we kind of mentioned it, but envy in itself, it's not necessarily bad. In, in this lower form, like I'm used to say, like if one of my friends had a really nice weekend and I not really... And I just say, oh, I'm really envious of your weekend. And then I can just think for myself, next weekend, I should plan more fun things so I can have a great weekend. Totally. In this level, like envy is not necessarily bad, but it, does it become bad? Like, what are some of the consequences? Mm, great question. I just want to piggyback on your, on, on the good, I just want to sit with the good part of it a little bit. Absolutely. Because when I heard you talk about the weekend, the more, like those feeling words that come up for me are adoration, aspiration, motivation. Those are lovely things, right? Like those are really nice. It gets a bit ugly, <laughs> but not something you should be ashamed of, but it gets ugly when you start to experience a lot of grief or embarrassment, you know? So if I'm comparing myself to other people and they possess something I don't have, I might actually grieve. And it's okay to grieve because I might never have that thing, you know? So if I'm really like, oh, I wish I was, you know, Vincent's height, like I should just grieve that. And that's legitimate because it's not going to happen. But if it brings up a lot of embarrassment or shame, it, it's a bit trickier to navigate because shame makes you feel inferior, like you're not good enough. And it, it's hard to deal with that in a healthy way. It's possible, but you have to really, you have to really sit with it and do some self-talk, right? Right. And now I want you, I want to invite you back to do a whole episode just on guilt and shame because I have so many things to say about those, but we're talking about envy right. today. Yes, yes. No, absolutely. Absolutely. And I, I think when people are, so let's say like envy activates this like cluster of motivation or aspiration, but also perhaps grief and shame we're thinking about what's possible for us to possess or get closer to possessing and what we can't is not in our reach. It's not made for us. Or, you know, it's like, it's stronger than that. It's structural. It's like these people have something and it's because of their privilege and I'll never have that. You know, then we're talking about like anger and frustration and rage. So those are all mm -hmm. tough things, but to me, that's all in the realm of appropriate. Those are like all appropriate. 
I think what's hard is, or or what's less helpful, is when envy leads to really harsh competition, where we want to beat somebody at something, not in a friendly way, but like to their detriment, right? So we get really greedy. We have a sense of inflated self, so grandiosity, and maybe even hostility, right? Where we become less friendly with that person. We become distant. When we see them, we're sarcastic. Yeah. We'll say things like, oh, you look like you spend a lot of time at the gym, or oh, you've been hoeing around town. Like we say these sarcastic things that are, they're, they're hostile and they're because we envy the person. We might also gossip about the person. Bringing them down, destroying them almost is like becomes part of the mix. And I think that is unhealthy and also it's really unproductive and, 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 and even can become self-destructive, right? Because it can be so consuming. Yeah, when it's consuming, it becomes so, well, I guess consuming. I don't have another word, but I've seen it. And, and you named privilege and we do live in a very unjust, unfair world. Yes. And it's normal. Like some people have not as many privilege and there are some people for whom it creates envy and you'd say it creates anger. Mm -hmm. And then I've seen people just stuck permanently in that anger for not having those privilege. Yeah. And that's fine to feel that anger because that's where activism comes from. And please, we need to change those systems. But just staying all the time in that anger, it's just the opposite of self-care and self-love. And how good of an activist can someone be if they're not able to do any type of self-care? Totally. I, I think one of the tricky things is that part of our activism to counter social injustice is like what I would call counter-identification, where we identify with an alternate culture or an alternate set of values, and we want to commit to those, right? So we want to divest from capitalism. We want to shift the way we see body ideals. We want to think about money and consumerism differently. So that's great. One of the challenges is, is that as much as you want that, if counter-identification becomes part of who you are, you have even less space to then talk about envy. Mm -hmm. You know, I might say that I want to divest from you know, hegemonic masculinity. And yet I still, I have to be able to talk about the fact that, you know, when I see men whose masculinity is celebrated, when they get to access things, I feel a bit envious. I still need a space to be able to say that, you know, wanting to divest doesn't mean that I suddenly live in a different world where I have all this power. <laughs> exactly. Just because you divest from it personally and you may put up boundaries and like, oh, if when people really think like that, I'm not going to engage with them. It doesn't mean that the world has suddenly changed and that, you know, toxic masculinity, which is rooted in sexism, is no longer existing. Of course. But we're trying. We're working really hard to dismantle those. Totally. We might still need a few years. Hang on. Hang on for maybe <laughs> a couple more years. Oh, honey. <laughs> I'm thinking a lifetime. Yeah. But okay, we'll go with a few years. All right. It's not delusional, the topic of today. <laughs> yes. <laughs> You've talked about competition quite a few times. What is healthy competition? Because I believe it exists versus unhealthy competition. Well, I think it's like if I think about 
what my potential is and what I can do. And I want to learn from the person whom I'm envying, right? Like I'm aspiring to be a bit more like them, but I want to learn from them. And I don't diminish myself in the process. So I think like, hey, I want to learn from you. I want to be a bit more like you, or I want to have some of the things you have. And I want to do it my own way without diminishing myself and without destroying you (laughs) or taking pleasure in your suffering to me that's healthy. And maybe, you know, some would argue maybe that's not even competition. That is like a kind of collective growth and collective support. Like that might, there might be another way to think about that entirely. I think another healthy approach to envy is to identify the sense of competition that gets aroused or activated in you and then to counter it with maybe just a bit of gratitude to say like, you know, it's normal for me to want what that person has, but it's not necessarily for me. It's not reasonable for me to expect myself to look like that or achieve that or have that. My life is entirely different. Look at you using those CBT tools perfectly countering (laughs) your thoughts. (laughs) I do. I am partial to CBT. I do think, I don't think it's the be all and end all, but I think some of that self-talk stuff is really helpful. Yeah. And this is a podcast, obviously, for queer folks. Both our background is a little bit more working in gay men's mental and sexual and holistic health. But where does envy falls, maybe for queer people, you know, as a large group, and maybe more for gay men, because that's a little bit more what you know? Well, I think for a lot of us, so this is like, just about all gender, sexual and romantic minorities, I think Envy shapes a lot of our self-concept because I think from a very young age, we think about what other people have that we don't. And we don't often see our differences as strengths. We see them as deficits, especially growing up. I'm not talking about present day. And so if you grow up thinking about yourself as having a lot of deficits, that's like lacking things that other people have. So those could be social skills. Those could be ways to participate in like school athletics, gym, social clubs, social groups, dances. Yeah, while most people in school, in high school, are busy developing those social skills and interacting with with the other gender, let's let's be real, it's a heterosexual world there. Yes. We are busy just questioning who we are and where we fit in. So we don't have that chance to develop those skills, those romantic or aromantic skills. So when we arrive in the world and we finally come to ourselves, like, I don't know, 18, 19, and now it's time to date. And I'm like, oh, I wasted my whole high school. I could not practice <laughs> dating properly with the gender that I want to date. Yes. Or as the gender that I am and not the one I was assigned at birth. Totally. You know, and it's interesting because high school is like, it's not our developmental peak. Like there's a lot to live. There's a lot of life to be lived after high school. But I think because we're shown that high school is like these formative years in movies over and over again. And I think because we are so particularly marginalized and can't participate socially in our worlds in those years that 
the imprint of that envy really stays with us. And so later in life, you know, we we might experience a kind of greed or like a sense of maybe greed isn't the right word, but like wanting to have everything and wanting to have it all, you know, like I want to have all of the sex. I want to have all of the men. I want to buy all of the things. <laughs> or I want to recreate that heterosexual normative, like perfectly and, you know, be exactly what I was told all my life that I could not be. Totally. And I want to compensate in so many different ways by buying this and owning that and blah, blah, blah. So I think like early envy impacts our self-concept in a way where we might not think that we can exist without competition. We think everyone's our competitor. And I think that can be hugely damaging when we're trying to build like a community of care <laughs> and trying to support mm. each other as a community. Yeah, absolutely. I think I've never heard those words put together just the way you did. And I'm uh, I'm going to have to think about those after the podcast, after the recording. For gay men specifically, I think you've mentioned it a little bit. I think body image and this wanting for muscles and sexual conquest are two of the things that are very envied in our communities. Yeah. Are there any other things that come to mind? Well, just to touch on the body stuff, when we talk about our challenges, we talk about body image as a challenge. But when we're talking about envy and how we want to defeat it, combat it, overcome it, defend against it, approach it, I think what we do is we shift to a body focus. Because I think that when we focus on our bodies, we feel like we have a lot of control in our lives. And we do that because if we think we can shape our bodies and sculpt them to be a particular way, we don't have to experience the humiliation of envy again. Yeah. So I just want to put that out there. Like, I think there's a body focus that is about preventing humiliation or preventing the experience of envy ever again. And I think that's quite complex, you know, in a way. Bodies are that one thing where we were talking about kitchen appliances. If I want one, I can save money and, and go get it. Like I can literally work hard and achieve the buying my food processor. Exactly. And then bodies, our media are constantly telling us that you will achieve the body that you want if only you put the time and effort and will and enough of it in it. And that's just not how it works. This is not how our bodies are designed. This is not how our bodies work. And it's so hard to unlearn that because it's been the message all the time. Doctors say it, therapists say it, life coach say it. Like it is such a hard message to unlearn. Yes. Unfortunately, sculpting a body is not something you can attain through just hard work. So many other things are part of it. Yes. And, you know, when we envy it, right, we want to possess it. I think we have an idea about how it'll make our lives better, mm -hmm. or that we'll be in closer proximity to people, or that envy will disappear. And having worked with lots of gay men in therapy, as you probably have, who have, you know, the muscles and the ripped bodies, they're just envious of the next person. Oh, yeah. Or they feel empty, or there's things missing, or they feel anxious, highly, highly anxious about what will happen if they can't maintain that physique. So I, I think I, I do want to put out there that uh, we have to challenge our envy when it manifests in, you know, the body project where we think we're going to get a handle on the envy and make it go away. It won't. So 
Back to your early question, though, about, you know, how else does it express itself in our communities? I think if people agree with the earlier point that envy permeates so much of our self-concept as marginalized people, I think our subculture, particularly with gay men of like sexualized drug use, I think it helps mitigate all the envy. I think it helps cut through it where I don't have to think about how tall you are, how white you are, how big your butt is, how big your shoulders are, how tight your abs are. Like we can like get out of the headspace of comparing and thinking about, you know, I want to be like you. I want you to like me. I want to possess you. And we short circuit all of that. And we're in the culture of sexualized drug use. We're all having sex with one another. And I think drugs allow for that. It mitigates the envy in such a unique way. It shuts up the little voice in the back of the brain that keeps telling us a bunch of things, including I'm not good enough, but also I need to do grocery tomorrow. (laughs) I'm stressed because rent is due and I don't have enough money. I may not have a place to sleep tonight. Like all of these things are just, they disappear. Yes, it shuts that off. And it also creates like for a temporary time, a world where, or a space where people are equal or lateral. Like, I'm not saying there's not power imbalances in those spaces, but what I am saying is that to a large degree, a lot of power imbalance or differentials we see in our day-to-day life can be lateralized in those spaces. And I think that is a big draw to cultures of sexualized drug use. Absolutely. And on the flip side, Rahim, how does it feel when we are ourselves the object of envy? <laughs> I don't know. It's never happened to me. <laughs> right? I was like, please, someone let me know. <laughs> it's so easy to no. make that joke. <laughs> Even as therapists, we show our discomfort with the idea that some people might be envious of us by making basic jokes. Yeah. Look, I'll be honest. I think sometimes it feels nice, but it also feels uncomfortable. Like it's hard to know what to do with it. So sometimes if you're the object of envy, maybe it increases your self-confidence, but other times, if somebody really envies you, it can, it can cause like relationship strain, you know, because you're, you're not sure what people are expecting of you. And then you try to be a slightly different person and you fumble and you let them down or you're not your authentic self. Like it, it leads to a weird experience. I think sometimes when I think about, for example, people who have money or they own a home, which is something that's really, it's a commonly prized thing in Toronto. We're like, oh, you could afford to do that, you know, or you were able to do that somehow. I think the way people handle being the object of desire and envy is by a bit of denial and concealment. They'll hide the object of desire or they'll reduce the worth of it. Mm -hmm. They'll say, oh, yeah, you know, like I got it early on or I got lots of help. Or, yeah, I have this thing, but, you know, things in your life are so much better. Or, like, I really like all the things that you have in your life. So there's a way of turning it on its head. And and if I think about feeling words or mental health words that describe it, I would go to concealment and denial. Sometimes when we're the object of envy, we might engage in different kinds of sharing. You know, we were like, I have something you don't, I want to share it with you. I want to make you part of my life. Or we think about sharing resources, time, money, or it it could be the way that sometimes friendships begin. As an example, I've had people say to me, hey, you're a cool therapist. I like what you do on the internet. I'd love to like 
meet you. And well, I'll be like, oh, that's very flattering. That's what I did to you. <laughs> <laughs> and, and yeah, we, we did that, right? Like we went and we hung out and we had drinks and that's very sweet. So like there's a kind of sharing of time and I don't know how else to think about it, but there's something that the person gives and then there's an opportunity for connection. So that's kind of nice. Yeah. I think one of the thing where you envy someone or I made a joke, but I, I know I've been on the receiving end of envied in the past. And one thing that was troubling me is that it almost like dehumanized me. It made me just the things that I've accomplished instead of being a whole human. And I did have that urge to be like, oh, but I have flaws also. Like, stop putting me on that pedestal. Stop thinking of me as just this. I'm a whole complex human. Yeah. And then on the other hand, like we probably both feel this way, where sometimes if what people are envying is a function of our privilege, we also have to create a space and listen to it and be accountable for it. Even if our go-to is to deflect, <laughs> I think there's moments where we're like, yes, you are right. I have this thing. I appreciate you telling me your feeling. I can see how me having this resource or this thing and you not having it. And it giving me some social advantage, it strains our relationship a little bit. And it makes you see me in a certain light. Like, that's legit. And I'm sure you do this too, where you just have to, it's important to create space for that in your friendships. I wish I was so organized. (laughs) (laughs) See, I envy your way of doing this. (laughs) And I I respond by sharing my gratitude (laughs) for your honesty. Great. (laughs) okay one thing that is great with my job is i do so much group work group therapy group support and i get to see how often in the group everybody finds that they envy something in the other person like i do a body image group for gay bi and queer men and often i hear people say like oh but i look around me and i don't think anybody should be in this group because of the way they look. Exactly. I see like good looking people and intelligent people. So it's really interesting how this works. And I obviously, I'm a big fan of group support. So if as a person, you have the chance to go do group support or group therapy, like don't have fear about it. Just go in and it's such a different experience than one-on-one therapy. I totally agree with that. I love group therapy, but In private practice, I don't have the same opportunity to make it happen as I did when I was working in a nonprofit organization. And it's really interesting. You get a group of people in a room who don't know each other before being there, usually, and they are all there for this common, quote unquote, problem or concern. And they look at each other and they say, you, you struggle with that? What do you have to be anxious about? What do you have to be depressed about? And we get to see the story behind the cover of the book, you know? Absolutely. Because the cover of the book tells a story, but there's a different story behind it. And it helps. I think it's humbling. It brings a lot of humility and it allows people to see that there's a possibility of connecting where they never imagined there was. Yeah, that was beautifully said. So Rahim, we've talked a lot. Is there anything that we've missed or that you feel like we need to add about Envy? No, I think we've talked about envy as much as we possibly can for today. And I've got nothing to add except uh, just my gratitude for having this time with you. Perfect. So we'll jump into our second break and come back for the last section of the podcast, which we'll try to give a few tips on what could help. We're 
we're back for our last section of the podcast, trying to give a few tips and pointers for people who may experience envy and what helps. We've named already quite a few things, including not adding shame to it or checking in with your emotions, making a list of some of the emotions that could be on top of the envy and how they make you feel. But what else can help, Rahim? Well, I think when we feel envy... And we're talking about wanting something that somebody else has and thinking that we lack that thing. We have to ask ourselves, do we really want that thing? Is that person a role model? Is it capitalism and shame and an unfair comparison that's driving the envy? Because if so, you know, I think we can do some self-talk to say, I don't actually need the thing that that person has. The envy was fleeting. I felt it. Now it's gone. And I feel great about that, right? Just let it move through you and let it sail on by. Yeah, absolutely. Like I said a little bit, if you envy something from someone, see them as a whole human and not just at that thing that they possess that you perceive you don't possess as much. Exactly. And and think about what do you assume about their lives just because they possess that thing? So if they are in a relationship and you're not, or they have a certain body and you're not, they have more money and you don't, you know, like, what do you assume about those lives and challenge those assumptions? Because they might be true, but they might not. And we're in cases where they are true, you know, where someone has something and it's a function of their, you know, their intergenerational wealth, the color of their skin, their social class, those things that speak to social inequity and injustice, you know, We can want to be like them, but we also have to think about grieving that loss. We're grieving injustice. They only represent the thing that we don't have. You know, it's not even about them anymore. It's about grieving the world we live in and the difficulty of that. Yeah. Although this is a podcast on envy, one thing that I do for myself and that I do sometimes with my clients, if they feel jealousy, because often jealousy seems to be easier to acknowledge first and envy is I encourage people when they are feeling jealous to talk to me as much as they want about that feeling without using the word jealous. And that's very interesting because it slows you down. And that's maybe something you can do at home. What do I feel? Am I sad? Do I have the fear that I'm going to lose this person? It just jealous is like this over encompassing word that Mm -hmm. means everything and nothing at the same time. So if you do feel it, maybe that's something you can try with yourself or journaling, like journal everything that you're feeling towards that without using the word jealous. That can be maybe a small tip where people can go. You know, both jealousy and envy, right? We're talking about like, I want something or there's a threat, you're taking something away. I think we have to remind ourselves that likely you know, the way we've survived, the skills we have, the networks we've built, the people we have around us, we have a lot of what we need already, you know, and that's an important reminder. So that's something I'll leave you with. We already have a lot of what we need. And practicing gratitude for those things is really helpful too. So hopefully that can work with envy as well. And we've talked about CBT before, Do you think that helps? How can people apply CBT in their life? 
<laughs> yeah. So look, I'm currently working on this project called Everyday CBT, a thought record series. Wow, it's so convenient. <laughs> it is, it is. What I'm wanting to do is have participants apply or get in touch. And what we're going to do is identify a situation that activates a difficult emotion. And envy can be one of those emotions. And we'll work through what's called the thought record in a linear way to help people examine all of their thoughts and beliefs that come up in particular situations when they feel envious or angry or ashamed or whatever it is, and help them come up with more balanced or restructured thoughts. So that's a project I'm currently working on. So if people want to get in touch, they simply just have to go to my link tree, which Vincent will post. Yes. But my username for link tree is rthauer. And you can get to all of my social media links by going to allmylinks.com forward slash lady out of van. It will obviously all be in the description of this podcast because it's a beautiful project. Rahim, Thank you so much for coming on my podcast. It's always such a pleasure to work with you. And I'm really excited to continue to work with you in the future and further develop our friendship. Yeah, thanks for having me. And I, I'm uh, really appreciating, you know, the work we do together, the times that our work intersects. And I look forward to having more friendly hangouts with you because I think you're quite a fabulous person. Oh, thank you. I think so, too. <laughs> about myself, not about you. <laughs> just kidding. Um, Rahim, you kind of just named it, but let's repeat it. If people want to find you on social media, how do they do that? You love people following you on social media. Yeah. People can look me up on Linktree forward slash Arthour, R-T-H-A-W-E-R, or allmylinks.com forward slash Lady Adavan. Adavan is A-T-I-V-A-N. Amazing. Again, this will all be in the podcast description. And I really encourage everyone to go have a look at all the amazing work that you do. Thank you, everyone, for listening. Do not hesitate to give me a rating or a comment if you like this episode and to subscribe to this podcast. If you want to stay in contact with me, you follow the Mental Health Much Instagram account. Until the next episode, please keep talking about mental health to everyone as much as you can and keep safe. Bye.